0: Uh, so glad you guys are all joining. Uh, we go live every week Tuesday at New Central, so make sure to subscribe and ring the bell. Today we're gonna be talking about the challenges of small to medium-sized manufacturers. Uh, I was talking with Ryan yesterday uh, who's the co-founder uh, and CEO of Pico MES. that you know we talk a lot about massive manufacturers like the biggest names in the industry that you know work uh, with us to digitally transform and you know our clients. Uh, But, you know, we also work with small and medium sized manufacturers, and that's some some uh, segment of the market that Ryan and his company actually focus and specialize on. So for today's topic, we wanted to really dive deep on what are the specific challenges that small manufacturers and uh, mid to mid sized manufacturers face? Because let's be honest, uh, companies that have less than 500 employees, those those employ Americans. And so for us, it's really important part of our mission to save and create middle-class jobs in the United States by helping manufacturers do more with less, we can't ignore that segment of the market, right? Obviously, the big companies employ a lot of people, but there's not very many big companies, and there's a lot of small companies. So if that's you guys, you guys are in the right spot. Uh, so Ryan, welcome.
1: Yeah, Thanks for having me, Zach. Yeah, the under 500 is a, is a much bigger part of the market than the over 500. A lot of people miss that. 54% of the output comes from those small factories in the US um, and then 42% comes from the big guys
0: 500 wow so, so. wow so it's like uh the David and Goliath story here like the small manufacturers are you know uh giving the big manufacturers a uh, a run for their money so l- let me ask you this we said uh, we said uh yesterday that you know the small to medium-sized manufacturers are actually kind of behind so they they're kind of poised to take advantage of this opportunity here but let's start with this what does this typical small size manufacturer even look like like head head headcount facilities what do they produce right Mm
1: -hmm. yep the i mean these are the suppliers to all the big names that's kind of the the interesting piece that comes through so you it, it makes sense when you take a step back that there's so many more of them because for every Ford, you know, or General Motors facility or Boeing, you've got hundreds or thousands of people that are feeding them parts from all over the world. Uh, and a big chunk of it still comes from the US. So the the factories that we focus on in this world, they're also there's kind of a a few key characteristics. One is they tend to be specialists, so they're going to do 60% of their output from Uh, one kind of manufacturing right so if you're a machine shop you machine things and then you might also have uh, secondary operations you might have uh, whether it's post-processing for coatings things like that or light assembly in the front test things like that Um, and some of the other key attributes that we find really interesting is especially for standalone factories that aren't part of a conglomerate uh, they tend to have the domain expertise of, of what their craft is inside of their four, four walls. So the people okay. who actually understand the machining, they're there. They're not in some tech center, you know, 500 miles away. Uh, and okay. the, the other piece to keep in mind is 80% of the operations are still performed by human beings, right? It's a semi-automated world you've got a machine with a person manning it, or you've got wide assembly using maybe automated, uh, DC torque tools or, uh, different test equipment, but there's still a human in the loop the majority of the time.
0: Okay. And, um, is that due to the nature of like kind of their specialized process versus like a massive manufacturer that sort of does everything like, or why? And so why, why is that?
1: Yeah, I think, um, there's a lot of similarities to the, to the larger manufacturers as well and how they perform their things. You, automotive assembly is still very labor dependent, even in the Tesla factory. Um, right. But in the smaller facilities, a lot of it comes down to, you know, the mix of what they make or the individual profit or business case of those goods, depending on what that is. You know, not everything can afford hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of investment to automate out uh, different parts, especially in a high mix environment where you might be making you know, tens or hundreds of different components at the same station in a given day.
0: Um, okay. So, so like high mix, low volume kind of deal or. Yeah. You, 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 see a little
1: bit across the board, but you also have high volume um, suppliers where they're like tending machining centers. Think about extrusion manufacturing for uh, electric vehicles, real popular thing. Um, You know, you can have a robot load and unload the cell now, but not every facility has the equipment to do that or the expertise inside. So they might start with human loading. Do you really trust that the next EV company is going to ramp at the pace they say they're going to? Right. My (laughs) former employee, I don't think he's ever hit a date uh, that he said publicly. But, you know, so where do you when do you put in that investment is also another choice that occurs. And at the end of the day. This is a really, really capable, you know, system here, right? To get a <laughs> robot that I'm doing with my hand right now
0: is not trivial. Okay. Uh, All right. So if you people, had a... Oh, people sorry. Are really
1: amazing. I'm, people are amazing at what they do, right? Oh, of course, yeah. Uh, improvements.
0: So, so let me ask you this. If you had to send a message to uh, a small to mid-sized manufacturer right now, like what should they do right right this second based on where they're at? What What would that message be and what would your advice to them be?
1: I mean, my message is just that the technology has shifted towards them in a lot of ways. Like you can, you don't have to use a $3,000 PLC if you wanna log a $15 pressure transducer, right? There are other solutions out there that can that can work for your application. Um, you can connect in different tools. The cost of a DC Nutrunner, if you're an assembly uh, focused firm has dropped dramatically. You know, there's lots of options besides the $30,000 Atlas Copco. So my advice is always the same, which is just do something. The, you know, Take the first step. Uh, continuous improvement is a journey. It's not a zero to one transition where you, you magically are going to improve your facility overnight. But if you're not doing anything, if you're just reliant on the status quo and you're asking your operators to be a little bit more perfect every day, then that's where you're going to struggle, frankly. Um, and the opportunity is sitting in front of manufacturing in the U.S. now. You know the reshoring, all of the issues that have happened with supply chain disruptions. The focus on capabilities within the U.S. It's a perfect time to show what you really are capable of, to show off that domain expertise. Um, and if you can find the right tools to help you, you know, search out, seek and destroy those one to three percent losses that are adding up to the, the you know, forty to sixty percent OEEs you're running at instead of the eighty to ninety that you should be.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: that's how you look back two years later and you're like, we've completely revitalized this this facility. We are making more money than we ever have and we've done it through 500 small steps, not one massive step.
0: Okay. So, All right, that makes sense. So like kind of a small incremental change and taking action. Um, let me ask you this. What is a common misconception that some of the smalls and mediums have or uh, you know, some of the fears that they might have?
1: Yeah, the you know we have MES in our name at my company, which was a, a interesting choice. Uh, we wanted something that that people understood what it is that we do, but that's also a term that's one of probably the most scariest things when applied to small manufacturing. So you think about that's in the past has been three dedicated engineers or consultants, you know, five hundred thousand dollars in a year to get something you were going to hate when it was all said and done. Uh, But that's not the way of the world now there are opportunities out there where you can start for a few hundred dollars um, take a step try it use it in your facility find one business case that it made sense on and then scale that across to your other common stations and then take the next step and the next step and the next step Uh, but you kind of have to take that chance
0: i posted on linkedin the other day uh some uh some acronyms for mes and one of them was (laughs) maximally expensive software (laughs) Um, There was a ton of good ones. But so you're you're kind of taking the more minimally expensive software um, must execute uh, systems. I don't know. Something like that. But like, so how'd you even get in? How'd you even get started in this field? Like, tell us a little bit. Let's take a step back. Tell us about your background and how you got started in manufacturing and software development. So, I
1: mean, I grew up in a small town in central Illinois. uh, It's where the Firestone Tire plant was that got recalled with the Explorer back in the day. So lots and lots of friends in manufacturing uh, i always had a, a thing for mechanical devices so went to school to become a mechanical engineer um, but my career path was 100 percent automotive so i started with general motors in 2000 spent uh, 10 years with them until uh, 2010 a couple of years at tesla um, two years at a different startup doing engine control software and then three and a half years designing building operating an electric motorcycle factory um, before starting this company, and you know, my career has taken me from the biggest guys, biggest factories, all the way down to the smallest ones. You know, <laughs> right, right, all kinds of different forms. And I think what 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 finally got us to to break out and, and try to do something about this was the realization after decades of the same problem. When I worked at GM, the biggest problem we had was keeping our suppliers sending us quality parts at a good price. When I was at Tesla, my job was to parachute into these suppliers that were putting Fremont at risk, um, that were potentially going to stop the the ramp of the Model S, and to do whatever we needed to do to get those parts to be either of quality, manage whatever design change we were pushing, or increase the output. And my point to this is, no matter how much we work on the big factories and their efficiencies and where they're going, you, you have to have a complete supply chain to be able to actually improve and make things work. And then if you look 10 years in the future, imagine a fully connected supply chain where traceability data is instantly available. Capacity is understood mathematically and transmitted up and down. So if somebody needs to ebb up 10% in output, they actually understand whether or not there's the opportunity to get that from the suppliers or if they need another machine or what they need to hire more people. What does that actually manifest? you know, we can get to an efficiency point where we can just crush the rest of the, of the world, frankly. Awesome. Um, yeah. And you can sit back and talk about it or you can go do something about it.
0: You know, I, 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 um, it's interesting how you kind of started at GM and then you went to Tesla and I don't know, would you consider Tesla probably at the time when they were doing, uh, the model S, you know, almost 10 years ago now probably was more of a medium sized manufacturer versus a large, what they are today. Like, would you consider them more of a midsize back then? Or they it, they only it, had the one Fremont be, facility, right?
1: It would be an interesting place. Yeah. When I hired him, we were building Roadster still at the time. Oh, wow. 500, 500 engineers and 500 hourly ballpark. By the time I left, there was over 5,000. So Wow. Um, but it was always designed to be a much bigger manufacturer. Right. So, we, so they
0: operated like a big manufacturer, even though they were a startup.
1: In, in some ways. I mean, the, the team that was hired, the vast majority of it did not come from Automotive, uh, which gave them a lot of advantages in certain ways and a lot of disadvantages in other ways. Tesla okay. is a really interesting story, um, and if you look at the team that was there from 2009 to 2013, it has infiltrated the entire EV industry, right? There's there's basically right. two or three nodes that now populate the leadership of pretty much every EV company. Okay, you know, you know the General Motors EV1 and, and first gen Volt team. You've got the the Tesla uh, Roadster, Model S, and eventually Model Three, and then one of the Europeans out of the Volkswagen test labs that didn't produce a part but did a ton of research. Look at Lucid, and look at Rivian, look at you know you can keep going. Faraday. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, so um, a question. Um, you know, I was watching the other day, Sandy Monroe. You know, he got his model Model uh, S Plaid. And, uh, I mean, that thing's freaking amazing piece of engineering and, you know, he's breaking it down and, um, showing the differences and some of the, the manufacturing processes and how, like from a design standpoint, they've kind of completely rechanged like the, the, the drivetrain and, you know, uh, doesn't have the structural battery pack, but they're working on that for the, the new model Y. And, um, uh, one of the things he showed was like, they broke down the battery, like kind of control module and, um. They showed it showed one from they were kind of comparing it to the recent Model Y teardown that they did, which funny enough, um, it's sort of they sort of took a step back on the Model S door because they sort of did a stick build where they sort of build it on the door, like you know the the operators kind of reaching in and assembling all the parts into the door. Versus the Model Y had a module, like a kind of a plastic injection m- module that all of the, like the electronics and the speaker and everything was on that one module. You just pop that in and then the door just kind of goes right in in one piece. So I don't know why that, if they already had the module from the model Y, why not just use that for the model S? But in any case, they were kind of comparing the differences when they got to the battery breakdown, they, they showed the battery control module and, uh, you know, they're comparing that to the, the, the model Y module. And, um, it's interesting it's like the same form factor, uh, but they also like, there was some extra capacity for like, uh, fuses and so they had a couple extra electronic pieces but the the space was already kind of laid out there for them to add those additional fuses but one of the things they pointed out was like the capacitors there was like four or five capacitors that were like a different color and they're like well the reason why is it came from a different supplier and that was one of the things that we talked about was like when you're trying to be agile and you know you have supply change issues being able to change what components you're getting supplied from like changing suppliers on the fly is is sort of important. Do you want to touch on that and explain kind of what we were talking about yesterday with uh the value of the, of being able to change suppliers and also what implications that causes in the process.
1: Yeah, I mean, since the the tariffs kind of hit 3 years ago and then we had pandemic and everything that's that's come from it supply chains have been disrupted to say the least as everybody knows. But you know the the strategies that we see coming into the market more often are dual sourcing strategies as opposed to a take it out of you know pick your um, offshore location and bring it back to the U.S. That um, does occur in some cases, but the dual strategy is like can I have a, a high volume steel tool? over in Asia, that is my primary path, and then maybe a lower volume tool, uh, aluminum tool, or a different supplier in the US that I can either fill in if there's shipping issues or if I need to make a change and I don't wanna wait for 16 weeks of pipeline, uh, I can move to that vendor and then go back and forth. So it gives you the flexibility that I think is highly valuable to companies as technology changes rapidly, right? The I go back to automotive because it's what I know, but this is occurring in other industries. Uh, But in automotive, it's the big push to EV and AV technologies. So if you're gonna tool up something that's supposed to last for seven years, that's a high risk on a technology that's maturing every year. Um, So the ability to have these dual strategies is great from a company perspective and what you can achieve in your product and your design maturity. The downside of it is is the guy on the assembly plant who has a problem with a part can't tell which supplier sent in the issue uh, if they look exactly the same and are sitting in the same box. So without basic traceability, you know, whether it's color like the one that you mentioned or some key differentiator that makes it obvious where the part came from, well, you can't do that with a trim panel or, you know, or whatever <laughs> customer piece might be, or so core electronics might all look the same. So just being able to have a QR code on the back of it that ties back to the vendor and a minimum the lock code, but ideally enough data that can tell you why it went wrong or where the change was that breakpointed it. So when you're staring at 500 of these parts, you know, okay, there's five bad and not 500 bad. The number of sorts that we've had to execute in my career <laughs> is just ridiculous. I can't even imagine what it looks like globally, but.
0: So when uh, you say sort, you mean kind of going back to the old, data purchase orders and trying to figure out what went wrong or what batch that came from or
1: or just I've got a i have got a you know, I spun a rib knot on the line and then aluminum extrusion All you go back to that part we were talking about earlier uh do I have I've got 500 pieces in inventory are 499 more of them bad or do I just have one you know one off that's bad well if I can't you know step one is you got to go triage and figure out whether or not you know, you have a mechanical test or some way to tell that you're not gonna go build a bunch of bad product. Um, But if you have traceability data readily available, you can tell like, wait a minute, this one was done in a rework that we thought was valid, but isn't clearly valid. Or, you know, was there an exception that that passed the control plan that may or may not been enforced? But, you know, is there more data? Without data, you're guessing. And if you know exactly how something was built, it gives you advantages, right? It doesn't mean you're going to solve every problem, but without it, you're guaranteed that you're going back to the old ways. So right. the more you have that that data, or at least an understanding at a minimum of like it came from supplier A versus supplier B, it gives those teams who are trying to make a decision right there on the fly. What do I have? What am I going to do? Every 54 seconds, another full-size truck is running off this line. Am I shutting it down? Am I letting it go? I'm like, what are we going to do? <laughs>
0: So, right on. If
1: lived in that environment. It's you know, it's an interesting, interesting world when you're flying blind.
0: Uh, awesome. We got a couple of people in the comments. Hey, Alex. Hey, Brianna. Hey, Julia. Hey, Cheryl. We got a lot of uh, women uh, leaders in the chat today. So, welcome everybody. If you guys have any questions, make sure to drop them in the chat. Ryan's uh, an expert um, and you know has a depth of experience. So now's the time to ask them. Um, so I got a couple of questions queued up that, uh, we kind of went over yesterday, but we're going to kind of, um, I want to ask a question and then give you maybe two to three minutes to answer it. And then we'll, we'll kind of do them in rapid succession. How's that sound?
1: <laughs> Sounds good.
0: Okay. So, uh, why are the small to mid size manufacturers behind?
1: So I think at the, at the core technology vendors are not focused on small and mid size manufacturers, right? They, they, if you look at, I come from a, ben, a venture-backed business. So in venture world, if you tell them you're going after the SMB market, that is a scary thing. They understand enterprise, multi-million-dollar contracts with names they understand, right? I need to go get 30 of these or 50 of these or whatever it might be. Um, so you don't have the technology coming out that's focused on the budgets, the needs, the capabilities of those companies. The other side of it is is What is available out there tends to be more piecemeal solutions. It's either big company solutions trying to be brought down or it's a piecemeal, like an advanced camera system, right? There's lots of machine learning based ones, but you gotta know how to integrate that. Universal robotics have made robotics much more approachable than they have ever been, but you still have to understand end effector design and how to program them and what the, the rollout is. It's getting easier, but it still requires that integration burden. And these small factories, I think that's the real struggle is tying, tying together an ERP plus this other technology, an IoT network, and somehow bringing that to the operators. Uh, they may not have the staff to actually do those integrations. And then you're back out to the consulting world, which is helpful, but can be expensive and ties back to that budget. So the, the key to, you know, I can talk about how to solve that, but I think that's the biggest difference is that they don't have the integration capability that the big factories do. There's not a team of people trying to bring technology in. All the right. Technology.
0: So that's my next question. How do you, how do you develop a solution that meets the budget needs and the capability needs of a small to medium sized manufacturer?
1: I think you got to get back to the advantages that they hold. So when you look at a SMB factory or an SMM um, they, the, there's some, some key advantages that are present in that facility. One, the majority of the time they're buying off the shelf equipment, right? They didn't create a CNC machine for themselves. They didn't buy, they didn't make a DC nut runner. The majority of the time, there's still a human in the loop. It's not an integrator built line. They exist in this world, but it's not the majority of those factories. Uh, What that means then is there's a finite number of things that need to be integrated. Yeah, there's a million part numbers of scan tools, but there's really only two or three ways scan tools connect. DC nut runners talk on open protocol the majority of the time, right? CNC machines talk on three protocols. They don't, and you're up-censoring them. You've got MT Connect, and there's the OPC side of the house, um, you know, plus stragglers. But the point being is, if you can eliminate the repeated work that occurs in that factory today where somebody sets up an integration for a tool charges them 25 50 grand 100 grand whatever it is goes down the down the street does the exact same thing for somebody else and democratize these integrations that's like step 1 now you've eliminated all of this repeated work and you can spread it out quickly like the, the last few years of technology you know phone in your pocket we democratized information better than we ever had in the past and then the second side of it is is let the domain experts, be experts, give them the tools they need in their toolbox and don't sit on them and try to, you know, pull out tens or tens or 50s or hundreds of thousands of dollars from them in consulting fees. You know, why to me why why have I always had to rely on others when I was running my own factory? And it was because I either didn't have the time, which is a valid constraint, right? You may not want to hire to solve that, or I didn't have the expertise. Well, a modern platform that knows how to integrate all the tools and has built them in advance and plugs that in for you, that can eliminate the need for the expertise. You just need to know how to use it. You know, what is the application that you want to apply it to? Um, And then the time side of it, again, is if I don't have to spend all this time learning how to integrate it or setting up those integrations or building instructions that use the integrations, if that can be chipped away at until it's quicker quicker and quicker and quicker and quicker, then maybe I get 10 minutes of my day back and then eventually it becomes 20 minutes of my day back. You know, I used to say when I was running a factory, if I just got to do my job that day instead of fighting fires, fuck that was a great day, excuse me, that was a great day. (laughs) (laughs) It just never happened. It was very rare. Most of my day was spent trying to understand why did the previous shift only get 65 parts out per hour instead of 70 like the one before it or what am I going to do with this quality issue? what's in the pipeline coming at us, you know, is very rarely spent on continuous improvement, but if each time a mistake comes in into play or a, a need pops up, if you can flatten that sucker and never have to deal with it again, put in process error proofing and actually stop it. That's a different world. my right. friend. That's the world we want to live in. Like that's, so that's where it comes from.
0: What are the differences and challenges between, and then we'll talk about the approaches but what is the difference in challenges between uh like a large size manufacturer and you know, the medium size so small size manufacturer you talked about the advantages what are the differences and challenges
1: yeah the i mean from a market perspective getting getting people's attention just getting kind of awareness up that there are solutions they can take advantage of that are affordable and easy to implement Um, when you're firefighting all day, you're not looking at email, right? You're you're rarely even on podcasts and being able to attend some of the other industry shows going to a trade show is a big deal. So just making awareness is the key piece. Um, and then I think some of the other disadvantages are, you know, you always are fighting price point. Um, but I think there's solutions that, that can come into that. And then it's a matter of kind of being able to look below the surface and understand the fundamentals um, as opposed to, you know, every factory looks like a unicorn um, when you're staring at it from the outside. But if you look below the surface, it's still, you know, processes are always a series of steps in a logical sequence. You know, they're constrained by the physical world. You have tools that live at a station somewhere. Right. And you can only do work when you have a process in the station come together. Uh, so there's kind right. of the ability to see through the, the noise is a challenge inside of this world.
0: So let me ask you this: uh, We just did our um, uh, last week. We recup- We reviewed our um, digital mastermind uh, program. Uh, we reviewed the ERP integration module, and uh, we talked about the 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 evolution of ERP from like a a startup company that you know basically has a you know off the shelf ERP or just you know or using a spreadsheet to sort of a custom home brewed solution to all the way to like enterprise big box, you know, SAP, Oracle, that that kind of, you know, Epicor. Um what what ERP systems are you seeing uh in in the small to mid-sized manufacturers and how are they integrating uh how are they able to integrate with them?
1: Yeah, if you if I kind of take it back to to Walker's famous rant on the different pieces of software sets. In these factories what happens is there's way there's way fewer like they don't break all of that. So the ERP is really the, the ERP, MRP, WMS is kind of all in one place. Um, and then there's the execution side of the house, which is really paper travelers for the most part of what we see. Excel sheets, Word documents, PowerPoints printed out. Um, the most common ERPs that we see across there are obviously NetSuite. Every once in a while we bump into Plex. Um, Odoo in the startup world is, is more popular. Um, we do see Infor. We see Epic. Uh, I think I mentioned Epicor. If I didn't, that's on the list. What we n- almost never see is SAP. Um, it's just too expensive for most of these okay. facilities. And then you get into the offshoots, IFS um, and others. So the point is, I just rattled off six off the top of my head. It's still fairly noisy what's out there. You know, market leaders probably five percent of the market, ten percent of the market, maybe more. Whatever Suite is hanging out with these days.
0: Okay. Yeah. So you got a long tail of small ERPs.
1: Yep. And then you get into the the vertical specific ones. So you go over to like the machining world, you bump into uh, the ones that are really targeting either job shops or uh, certain pieces of that industry too.
0: Right. Okay. The cool
1: part about it for us, or the part that where we recognize is to us, an ERP is another tool to integrate right? It's not trivial, especially if you've customized the the ERP on the other side. But the amount of data you need to transfer back and forth is actually not terrible if you are willing to have your sources of truth be defined. And what I mean by that is the ERP doesn't have to be the source of truth for everything. If you try to achieve that, you're going to hate it. (laughs) These solutions are... If you find somebody who loves their ERP, I would love them to raise their hand. I'd love to talk to them and actually understand why they love it. But uh, how you know i think one of our strategies is, is do what you do whatever it is you're going to do but do it really well and be good at it and try not to try to avoid the things that you're not good at and partner with the, the pieces that make that happen but do it in a way where the burden of integration is not placed on the customer right? okay the that integration should be on the companies
0: got it to make their Yeah, products. walker says uh you know, ERP vendors are not good at building MES software. That doesn't stop them from trying to develop MES solutions, but they're not good at it. So how do you you specifically at Pico, like, tackle that integration problem?
1: Yeah, so we, I mean, we focus on the fundamentals. You'll you'll hear me come back to that a lot. It's two years of getting yelled at by Elon. Everything comes back to first principles pretty quick. Um, So what does an ERP and an MES need to communicate to each other? The basics is the MES needs to tell the ERP what can be ordered. What are the available processes um, inside of the factory? The ERP, in the case of an ERP-MRP combo, it's going to send over the number of work orders and manufacturing orders, groups of work orders. This is the orders I would like you to achieve. The MES also then says, hey, I've started this build uh, so that you can move inventory to WIP and you have an understanding of what's allocated if you didn't already do that movement. And then it has to send the complete flag and the labor, basically your cost of goods sold related items. So how much labor content did I have? Um, did I have scrap along the way? Things like that. I, that's it. That's really all you have to send back and forth. There's nuances for serialization that goes back and forth. So if you are tracking inventory by serial number, um, but it, what it does is it allows us to have a relatively small scope when we connect to the two because Pico has such a, an intrinsic built-out data structure that's easy to view, you don't need the ERP now to be the source of traceability data. You don't need the ERP to be the source of where your torque results are, or measurements, or what firmware was inside of something. Um, Because the traceability can actually be easier to accomplish in the source where it came from, as opposed to using an ERP, which is, I mean, its basis is accounting software. I love getting into the fundamentals of what an ERP does and why they make very bad MES systems. And I love why MES systems make very bad ERPs as well. (laughs) (laughs) And it comes down to what what their, their kernel of software, what they are fundamentally based on their principles uh, are very different. Yeah. So I got a question
0: from the uh, Durga. What are the major effects pros and cons when a small size manufacturer is acquired by another mid-size or large-size manufacturer with a different MES. um, Do you change the MES structure? I mean, really, this is sort of a system integrator or solutions architect question, but, uh, you know, what are are your thoughts?
1: This just happened to us. One of our customers in in Southern California was purchased by a very large company as part of their acquisition strategies. Um, It actually played the other way, which was very interesting. So if you're a big, large company or a private equity group and you buy a company that has something else in it, the first thing you do is evaluate what they have. You might toss it out because it was in-house or uh, maybe it's old and legacy, but there's also the side of it for us anyway, where now we're now a part of the large company's portfolio that they could take advantage of. Um, okay. So it was interesting. We still have to, the big change they had was they actually had to change their ERP. That's the... the The business pressure is gonna come from that. Um, If you were making the exact same part as a different facility, there'd be more pressure to move the MES over so you could have common data. But at the end of the day, once you exit the four walls, you're going up to the cloud to be able to connect them together. Um, And so at that point, it's really about data, uh, how the data is sent in that way from a standardization. Um, And that's easy for us to manage, at least with our structure for data, may not be easy for everybody. Okay. But that's what we've seen in, in the two. Um, but it's a chance for the large companies to actually see if there's something new to add to their bag of tricks. Um,
0: do you do you love your ERP? Do I? No. Yeah, do you, no. <laughs> no. What do you, what ERP what ERP do you guys use at Pico? We use Odoo on our
1: side. Oh, nice. Um, okay.
0: For our background. Yeah,
1: there's a there's a history with Odoo and my former employee that's really cool. So yeah, so tell nice. us, for those
0: who don't know what Odoo is, give us the, the high level overview of Odoo. And you said it was more commonly used in like startups and ma- manufacturing startups. So, so Odoo what's... is
1: based out of Belgium. Um, it's a European first company. I, uh, You know, you can talk trash about anybody's software. <laughs> you can say great things about anyone's software. The way that I describe Odoo the best is it does everything. It really fights that integration battle really well. And it's open source, so you can manipulate it easily. Um, the downside of it is, is it does everything. And so if you try to do everything, the odds of it doing any one particular thing well mm. is reduced dramatically. It's it. I can equate it to SAP. And SAP is very similar. You can do anything you want with it, but you're going to have to customize the hell out of it to get it the way you want it. Okay. So, um, our burden for an ERP is incredibly low. We effectively, we use right. it basics but
0: because you're basically like a digital company you're you don't really you, you're a software company you don't have like a an advanced manufacturing execution system i imagine so.
1: <laughs> we run we uh you know we are software focused we do provide some hardware to our customers we use microcontrollers as our iot devices to drop the cost dramatically so we have to provision those so that they plug and play so we we build those up and then we have a local server for factories that uh don't have server racks inside of them. It's just an Intel Nook, but we still have to assemble that and provision it as well. So we do dog food our own stuff. Our integrations team is perfectly capable of making hardware, and we solve what we call a gap. We 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 fill gaps when we see them in the market. We made a wireless bit tray for Torque Tools because it was super annoying to have a cordless tool in a corded bit tray. So we sold that through a, a partner that for a while. Awesome, awesome. Um, we have an operator badge that uses Bluetooth, so when you walk up to the station, it just logs you in because it's super annoying to tap the screen hundreds of times a day if you're moving back and forth across stations. We have some stuff like that that we add. Okay, uh, like,
0: sweet. <laughs> uh, John Manal, uh, M- Maldonado said um, he had a good question. He hears uh, that MES is defined differently for everyone. Um, Ryan, what would you say MES is? And second to that, like what what areas of MES does Pico attack.
1: Yeah, I, I think this is an excellent question. MES is defined all over the place by different people. So is factory OS, kind of the more <laughs> modern term. Um, I mean, at its core for large factories, the MES um, is the, the scheduler and executor of the the order requests. And then it, it gathers its data. It connects into the SCADA IoT networks that go downstream to HMI um, or, or work instruction our definition of MES crosses the line. We we are a uh, executor scheduler, if you will, plus we also have an IoT network for the data collection side of the house and and organization. And then we have worker guidance uh, in the form of work instructions as well as workflow tools. Uh, So we kind of cross over multiple boundaries. At the end of the day, I think you need it all. And what you call it shouldn't really matter. You just need a language. There isn't a common term that people understand, but at the end of the day, manufacturing execution system actually makes somewhat sense. Like I'm going to execute what I'm supposed to manufacture. (laughs) Uh, But the details definitely are varied across different suppliers. So,
0: Awesome. So for anyone who didn't catch that, you said uh, you do work instructions and then like basic performance or what are the elements of, of Pico again? So Pico starts
1: with, um, we call it the what to do engine, what's supposed to happen in the factory. So it's work instructions, but in a a completely different form, right? Either sitting in front of the operator, fully integrated with all their machines or sitting behind them just doing process error proofing. They're not even paying attention to the screen. There's a workflow tool that drives process to process to process flow so that you don't skip a quality station and accidentally putting a battery module into a vehicle that you shouldn't have, for example. Um, And then the other side of the business is all the device library, um, the pre-built integrations that are no code to drop in, and that has an IoT network that lives with it. So you're holding a USB cord in your hand for a scan tool, what do I plug it into? I need something to bring it into the network. And that's where the microcontrollers come into play um, that we use there. If you're a network connected tool or machine or or system, then it plugs in direct and you, you don't need that edge device, so. Uh, what that's the key is kind of getting those integrated together.
0: Uh, okay. And so, uh, it sounds like you're talking a lot of, about like discrete manufacturing, but like in your own words or, uh, <laughs> you know, what industries or verticals are you seeing your, uh, the software adopted in most?
1: Yeah. So we're, we're focused on the assembly industry right now, which is about 15% of the U S market overall, um, the, the next piece that we'll move into is what we call machine tending. So you're into the repetitive side of the house and somewhat of the continuous batch, if you speak the five types of manufacturing. Where we don't see the ad is in continuous process systems. They typically already have something. You know, Our target market, 90% of our customers don't have, or 90% of the market, ignore our customers, just are still running on Microsoft Office-based systems. Right? The right. amount of adoption is very low. Uh, If you switch over to continuous process-based systems, A, there's not a whole lot of small factories making chemicals or food.
0: Uh, They do exist. Right, okay, that makes sense, yeah.
1: Machine to machine to machine movements uh, and more regulated with systems that are already in place. Just to have a factory like that, you probably already have a SCADA network of some some form. Uh, And then we stay away from job shops. And it's not because we don't want to see them be successful. It's just the investment to create that what-to-do engine is reduced if you're only going to make one part. That world is much more focused, in my opinion, anyway, on how do I efficiently quote, get it to the to the system that's going to make it, get it from that system that made it out to shipping and logistics, and get it to the customer quickly and efficiently. So like, they're more
0: except- of like logistics and uh, business processes versus the actual manufacturing component, or.
1: I mean, it depends on the shop. Obviously, there's there's a wide variety out there. But if you think about like the Proto Labs business model, they're very focused on software that allows you to take a CAD model and turn it into a finished good as quickly and easily as possible with the minimum amount of interruption, right? If you think about a CNC shop that maybe builds to, on demand, right? To set up a bunch of data logging for something you're only going to make 20 parts of, and then you're going to move on to the next job doesn't mm. make sense. Got but you're focused on on that point is like machine uptime how how efficiently did I quote versus the reality of what it took to make it like, that's where the feedback loop is. You still it. have implication actually in both continuous processes and in the job shop kind of contract manufacturing world. Uh, it's just not the core. I think the core uh, need is still in this repetitive and discrete worlds.
0: Okay. What is the most surprising thing you learned about how to improve manufacturing execution from Alex Conway?
1: Hmm. I think the, it's it's the number of, the death by a thousand, my brain went to the death by a thousand cuts mentality inside of it. The fact that there's really just not a 20% low hanging fruit to grab in these factories. And instead what you're trying to figure out is how can I make a change in five minutes that gives me 1% gain or eliminates a mistake so I never have to deal with it again. And the most surprising thing I've seen is just how simple the integrations are, the simple needs. You know, when we walk into a factory people are excited about the idea of bringing on robotics or advanced vision systems or, you know, data logging everything. But at the end of the day, their first steps are, I just want to be able to scan a barcode and assign it to the operator, the station, the process, and be able to say, I made this part with a printed label using these things. Right. And then they add a torque tool and then they add a, whatever it might be over time. Um, And I think, you know, it's exciting and it's also really interesting just to see all these little discrete things that make everybody's day, you know, make somebody's day five minutes better.
0: <laughs> what about at, uh, at Tesla? Cause one of the things that I found interesting was how much more efficient, like removing 300 robots by doing like single piece castings for like their, you know, um, like newer models, like model Y and stuff like versus, um, you know, welding all, all the, you know, 70, it was like 70 or 80 pieces that turned into one piece. But in your experience, what has been some of the small thousand cuts that, that you sort of, uh, tried to eliminate at Tesla?
1: I mean, Tesla was fascinating because you had very, very smart people working on these problems and they were, again, to the fundamentals. Um, the, the first thing that jumped to mind is we did a study of the, the types of mechanical Component creation. So, extrusions versus castings versus high, well, low, low pressure gravity and sand versus high pressure dye, uh, forgings, uh, stampings, like different things like that. And we were looking for cost to mass to strength. And uh, that, I mean, I never, I'm sure General Motors has a chart somewhere that understands all of that and part of their tribal knowledge world, but it was never like front and center to me, like it is at, at Tesla, where they were like, oh, clearly extrusions are where we're going let's go get extrusions Um, the way that they approach it from that perspective i think was really good when i was there we still like to take a step forward shoot ourselves in the foot doing something really stupid because they didn't have the background on what they needed and then bandage up your foot and then take another step forward. Uh, we were still in an, uh, kind of my maybe the earlier learning phases of, hey, the automotive companies actually do a lot of things really well. We might want to learn some of that and bring some of that expertise in place when it comes to manufacturing. Um, but the way that they do their designs, how fast they can iterate is incredible. And then um, the way they kind of understand the fundamentals of what they're doing to, to be able to... To iterate quickly, mm, like the giga right. game that you were talking about, and how that could eliminate. You know, it's technically a, a more mass if you look at how that piece comes together, but it traded off all of this other cost and allowed them to take mass out otherwise. Right, and you take advantage of sections that they couldn't do with other forming techniques. So,
0: are there any books or resources you recommend to learn about uh, more about MES?
1: I have yet to find any good systems out there. So I would actually be looking for recommendations to point people to as well. Um, there's so much noise on the internet around that because everyone's trying to sell you their viewpoint, uh, Right, it's it challenging,
0: I asked, uh, two or two real for TV asked any opinions on critical manufacturing for an MES system.
1: Yeah. Define critical manufacturing.
0: Yeah. I, I asked them to explain more. So, um, too real for TV. Can you explain more what you mean by that? Sweet. So, um, all right, let's say customer small size manufacturer implements, um, you know, your platform, what are the what is their next step what are they asking for now like once they're fully set up and you know they' they're taking advantage of the software they uh, started achieving an ROI right they're happy what are they doing next
1: yeah I mean our customers start with this simple as one station in the corner to test it out and then it's a six to nine month journey to ramp across their facility so there's a journey involved right there that, that rolls out the I think the MES is the starting point. Like Basically, what we're attempting to do is gain a very, very, very quick ROI. We our, our target for ROI is 30 days because of the way our pricing model works. So you're never more than 30 days before you paid off that investment. Um, the end goal, you pick up 15%, 20%, depends on your factory and where you started from. But that's the first chunk. But what has happened is you now have a data structure that's sitting behind it that can drive automated business intelligence. I don't mean machine learning on a data lake that's just sitting there trying to find anomalies and tie correlations together. I mean, a properly structured database that understands exactly what happened, what went into it and what was supposed to happen. So it can understand losses off to the side, calculate capacity, and then look at bottlenecks and all of the improvement capabilities that intelligence engine is really the next phase that drives all kinds of growth. And this is what gets you to my humble opinion is that small factories should be operating at 90% OEE, not 85, like the global target. They're specialists. They do less things and they do more of it um, is a general term. And they should have an advantage versus, you know, a general Motors factory that's producing 12,000 variants of full-size trucks in a given day. Um, But Anyway, once you hit that BI level, that business intelligence level where you can see exactly where to go uh, and you've now achieved that high level of efficiency, the connecting of the supply chain is gonna be the thing that I think really dramatically changes the the way we operate. So the, you know, Bill Gates has a quote that we we overestimate what we can do in two years and underestimate 10, right? I think that's the underestimate is gonna be the power of a connected supply chain 10 years from now.
0: So are you looking at um, adding some of these capabilities to the platform or or like where do the, you know, uh, to Pico or are you, what is the uh, kind of roadmap that you're able to share?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, our primary focus is to make sure whatever we do, we do it very well. Um, But staying focused. We, yeah, we want to make sure we have manufacturing doesn't care why the line got shut down, right? Like no one cares. They're going to yell, they're mad and they don't want it shut down. So we want to make sure we are always high reliability, high capability, and we're achieving the customer needs. But absolutely we're going in those areas. We have a couple yeah. of approaches. We don't sell hardware ever. You want to buy a torque tool, I'll give you a loaner to try out, but you should still buy it through the traditional system. So we can stay independent third party. Um, we know that, an ERP light solution could make a lot of sense uh, in this market and MRP light preventive maintenance modules. There's insurance companies out there that are constantly asking us, can we have access to like, what does your data stream look like so we can give lower insurance rates on the, you know, if you buy a Mori Moriseki, that's the piece you're going to run insurance on. And they want to know that that million dollar piece of equipment's getting its PM. Um, and there's all this capital for ESG coming in as well that, is an opportunity. So there's lots of what we call software modules we'll add on to the platform over time. Um, and our kind of view of it is an app store approach. So you've got the devices as apps on one side, and that includes really advanced ones, the camera systems and machine learning techniques and robotics and other, you know, integrator built pieces of equipment. There's all kinds of ways that that can plug in to our platform. And then you have the the software modules that we just described that can just help these facilities as a business grow.
0: So, uh, to real four TV said, our, uh, Mario said, um, uh, critical manufacturing is the name of a company in Portugal. They focused an MES on electronic components manufacturing.
1: Yeah. Um, I haven't seen them before. PCBAs have their kind of own their own world very much. Um, uh,
0: Right. And, okay. And
1: needs on how they come together, but uh, we'll have to check them out.
0: He asked uh, to real 4 TV. Do most sites use a custom MES solution? You said most of them aren't using any, right? They're using custom paper. <laughs> yeah. So
1: so yes, <laughs> they're all kind of homegrown. If you want to view Microsoft Excel as homegrown, <laughs> but um, what we see is you've always want that feel. The world, I think the world has gotten used to the idea that their solutions should be customized to them. Um, in other words, the, you shouldn't have to change what you're doing in the factory to line up to your MES, the MES should line up to what you are doing. And that's how our system is. You know, we're a series of Lego bricks that you grab the ones that you need and they all snap together properly. So it feels very custom. I do think you need that feel. I think the world needs to like be able to operate the factory the way they want to and not be held hostage by their MES system or their ERP
0: or any other. Is that, is that what's behind the name or what's, how'd you come up with the name Pico? So
1: Pico is actually a shot back at Tesla um, as an homage to the firmware employee. So Elon has his gigafactories, which is 10 to the power of nine, and Pico is 10 to the minus 12, which is as far away from a gigafactory as possible. So, okay.
0: so it's not one big monolithic MES. It's like you said, bite-sized, Pico-sized, like microservices, micro, micro solutions, and sort of that approach.
1: A series of small steps that's, that's kind of like the real key kind of sitting behind it. We use the iceberg as our logo because, you know, you only see a portion of the, of an iceberg. The, the majority of it is hidden below the waterline. And in our world, oh, okay. we wanted to feel like the majority of that power happens in the background and you just see what's, you know, in front
0: of sweet Okay. Guys, do you have it or guys, gals? Um, we're going to wrap it up here shortly. Do you, if you have any more questions for Ryan, uh, about MES, um, <laughs> About Pico, uh, I did link their website down below, and also Ryan, I linked your um, LinkedIn. Um,
1: I uh, update my picture. That's it's an old. There's a long story behind that one. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: yeah, well, yeah. What's up with that? What's up with the uh, the story in the suit?
1: So I was hired to be, I, hired, I worked for the CTO when I first hired into the company when I took that image. Um, and my job was just to fix whatever was the most broken thing. So that tuxedo is actually the exact same make and model as Harvey Keitel's from Pulp Fiction. in as <laughs> the cleaner. Uh, and what you can't see in that picture, if you zoomed out, was it has the exact same coffee mug he was holding.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Torrance, uh, who hell, actually shout out to Torrance. Uh, works for with you guys who helps kind of set this up. Um, he said, LMAO, the pick you used for Ryan. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. That's what you get for not paying too much attention to social and staying heads down on the company. So
0: <laughs> I was, I was checking out, uh, your employees on LinkedIn and I saw, um, one of your engineers has like a photo of him and his son, I think. Oh, yeah. uh, well, we Chris, Chris Scheib. And I was like, Oh, that looks like the photo I photo I posted yesterday with our last week with my me and my daughter so it's like cool to uh kind of have that family vibe but yeah he was a staff software engineer
1: yeah very much we we, we try to be a family i have a, a eight month old son with two other oh, nice children, have young children so we we're a remote team first so we're scattered around puts us close to our supply base um and gives us advantages <laughs> in the support side so you have to still kind of maintain that that team feel throughout the org so. all
0: right, we have two more questions that came in. Um I was gonna ask, like, how do you how do you run a startup and have a family at the same time? But probably just <laughs> the same way as everyone else. Like you just gotta Portland. make time for what's important. So um Alan said, excluding supply chain, what is the biggest challenge over the next five years for US uh SMBs?
1: I think labor jumps right out um in the, tr- the transition to the strategies that mitigate that. So you've got how do you recruit and retain um, new generation of workers as well as the tribal knowledge capture of the ones that are leaving? That's going to be the, the challenge of the next five years, all doing that while trying to implement the digital strategies that you know you have to do to succeed and win globally. So. And
0: the solution to that is, tech, is is a digital strategy is leveraging technology to re- re- attract the employee of the future and also capture the tribal knowledge of the old employees in in software and data
1: it definitely has a role in it for sure i mean at the end of the day the factory has to give the person a reason to be there So a mission check you know a mission mission driven side sometimes the mission is i just want to do my eight hours really well and go home and not have to carry anything with me but you have to at least recognize what that is for each individual person and then have paths that they can go down that make it a career instead of a two year job before they go get a different career. I have a lot of opinions on how my, I'm 41 years old, how my generation uh, was skewed away from skilled trades and vocational uh, towards college. And then the debt that was racked up before people went back and realized, Hey, I just want to be a welder. And I'm a mechanical engineer, you know, that my friends who are welders make way more money than I ever did, especially (laughs) now. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so you know there's a bit of this that's societal as well that recognizes there's some really awesome stuff that's happening in manufacturing you go into some of these more modern facilities or even the old ones that just have a ton of knowledge capture inside of them i i mean i think making things is awesome and yeah i really appreciate people who do
0: all right last question here um how does this software define produ- production operations is it modeled like uh isa 95 or something else
1: no, it's, it's off on its own. So we started with the fundamentals. So production operations are really like, again, a process is a series of steps in a logical order uh, that forms a process It has its unique ID. It, lines, it can be lined up to ISA, um, but it doesn't follow it per se, because most of our customers were not integrating into another environment that is looking for it on the other side. Um, and we haven't got the factory-to-factory communications burden that the big factories have to deal with, with you know, 300 sites throughout the US, or throughout the gold, globally. So. Uh,
0: okay. But it uh, is
1: it's yeah. a very unique kernel that's sitting behind all of this. Uh, and then we have APIs that can translate it to standards. Like-
0: yeah, 2Real4TV. Um, he said, my site currently uses uh, critical manufacturing. However, we are not integrated, everything manual entry. 2Real4TV, uh, if you're not already, jo- check it. Check out uh, on our website IOT, iot.university for uh, to our programs. We have a mentorship program teaching people how to work on Industry 4.0 projects, and uh, we have a digital mastermind where we're building leaders on how to how to you know transform a factory using solutions. Um, you know, instead of building a solution stack, you're building a technology stack built around a digital strategy and you're, you're picking solutions like Pico or like Ignition or like HiBite or, you know, you're building, you're building this technology stack that all is cohesive with your digital strategy. That's basically what we teach in, um, Mastermind. Take a look at it. Uh, yeah, I would recommend it if, if you're, uh, you know, if you're kind of an operations leader, you're, you're, you're head of the, uh, uh, you know, factory of the future initiative at your, plant that those, those are the type of people that we, uh, educate in our program. So, um, Ryan, if, if do you have anything else? Yeah. to his comment,
1: it, it still surprises me how many solutions vendors expect manual entry to be the right answer. If you give somebody a torque spec of 30 plus or minus one, and you ask them to record the torque, what do you think that number is going to be? 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, every time, like <laughs> the, the ability to connect to tools that are connectable to be able to grab the parametric data, just is what allows not only proper data collection, but also uh, the ability to set up error proofing. Turn off the tool if you don't get there. You know, be able to sound an alarm if you forget to do something. Buzz something. Uh, that only works if you actually get, you know, an in an input an action that brings it in. So we do awesome. see that. It's surprising to me, the like cloud-only solutions that can't touch the physical world. They solve some problems before they cause
0: others. Um, Brianna asked, uh, we've encountered numerous small to mid-sized manufacturers who understand they need to transform, but they continue to operate as usual. How do you overcome these mindset challenges? They don't have the resources, right? Like they're sort of understaffed, so they don't have the time to...
1: It's easy to stay with the devil devil, you know. It's scary to make a change. So what we do is try to, A, show what's possible. So case studies in in kind of the promised land is is somewhat important as long as it's relevant to them. But the other side of it that we do is make it as low a friction as possible. So we, for instance, always have a 30-day free trial of our software. Even if you don't want it, you get it. Because I don't believe that you can properly evaluate the use case until you've used it in your own world. And then the second side of that is, okay, if I'm going to sign up for that, it has to be incredibly easy. I don't have hours of my week sitting around to do it. So we set up and deploy in less than two hours. You're up and running in one day, like integrated tools, fully built, operational, done, right? So you have to get the friction out so that they'll try it. Once you get them to take the first step and they've tried it, then I think you have the advantage to, to change mindsets. And it happens slowly. You know, I mentioned earlier a six to nine month rollout across a a small factory, you know, venture world's like, what? It takes that long. You can't just roll it, (laughs) but you're changing hearts and minds, right? It's a different way of doing things. And the reward is it'll sit there for years. Um, So to Brianna's point, I think it takes, uh, you have to figure out how to get the friction as low as possible to get them to try it, um, to take that first step and then be there supportive
0: Awesome, that's great advice. All right, that's uh, that's gonna be it for today's show. Ryan, thanks so much for joining.
1: Thanks for having me, Zach. It was fun. <laughs>
0: uh, information, uh, Ryan's information, and uh, the link to Pico MES. Check it out down below. This is not sponsored, by the way. I, I should have mentioned that at the beginning. This is just trying to provide value for the audience, which I felt like it was pretty valuable. If you guys thought it was valuable, leave a comment below. Um, and uh, join the industry 4.0 community discord. Are, Ryan, are you uh, have, have you had a chance to join the discord yet?
1: I think Torrance is heading in there and I will as well. Um, awesome. and then also, if anyone was- has
0: any questions, I, you know, that's the place for you guys can reach out to Ryan or Torrance or anyone at, um, from anyone that we feature. So, thank you.
1: And we, we care about small factories succeeding. So, if we can help unpaid, like we don't have to be in every factory, but if we can help with a device integration or something that's already on our platform, by all means, let us know. We uh, want everybody to win. So. Awesome. I
0: don't- Thanks so much. <laughs> we'll see you guys next week. Peace. See you.